Welcome back to the White Bikini. My name is Marie, and joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banson. How are you, Nicholas? I'm great, Marie. It's good to be with you once again. Today is Wednesday, April 26, 2023, and yesterday we got the very sad news of Harry Belafonte's passing. He was 96. He did live a long life, but I was still sad, Nick, weren't you? Absolutely. We spent last week discussing Cosby, and I think diametrically opposed to that image of Cosby is a Harry Belafonte, someone who seems dignified, engaged, and didn't harm people unnecessarily. It seems like such a basic standard to judge someone by, but in so many ways, Harry Belafonte was the antithesis of everything that we found odious about Bill Cosby. So I suppose this is a great way to bookend our discussion about these trailblazing African-American men in Hollywood. Harry Belafonte was born March 1st, 1927. And it surprised me because my mother was born 1931 and he was still a couple years older than my mother. He just always seemed younger. Does that sound weird? That sounds weird. That man is just well seasoned, as you might say. He was an American singer, actor, producer, and activist. And this is one thing I didn't know, who was a key figure in the folk music scene of the 1950s. He was especially known for popularizing the Caribbean folk songs known as Calypso. I knew about the Calypso, but not the folk music, did you? No, broadly speaking, not about the folk music. We all know about, you know, the Banana Boat song um, and how he introduced uh, American audiences, Western audiences to Jamaican Calypso. So that part I, I knew about, but no, I didn't realize his influence was as broad as you're describing. And I do think the Calypso music and that Deo song, I think looking back, because you and I have talked about this, that has kind of that minstrel, let me keep the white folks entertained. It definitely had a feel of that. And I think that was part of its appeal. It's watch those silly blacks do their silly black thing for want of a more erudite description. But I think you uh, summed it up really well. That's part, I think in some ways you can make the argument that the Banana Boat song was the last really popular minstrel song of the 20th century. But he, you know, he did obviously, I think that was his peak of, I think even he was probably like, okay, I'm done. Let's move on to something more serious and thoughtful. Yeah, and I I think he recognized the moment. What are you talking about? Step and fetch it, Amos and Andy. It's it's very difficult for us to judge these black men because in so many ways, it's either you do this or you don't eat. And do you hold them as being complicit in their own degradation? Or do you hold the society as being responsible for only allowing these performers to exist in a role of these crude stereotypes. Belafonte was born in the Harlem district of New York to emigrants from the Caribbean islands of Martinique and, of course, Jamaica. When his mother returned to Jamaica in 1935, he joined her living there until 1940. I thought that was interesting. They went back to Jamaica for five years. He left high school to serve in the U.S. Navy in the mid-1940s, and I never knew that about him either. Yep, he's a Navy man. He was a badass, and not everyone gets the title of badass on the white bikini. I can only imagine what Jamaica was like back in the 1930s. My grandfather was born in 1910, so he would be a little bit older than Harry, but I mean, we're talking about a scene not that far removed from the previous century. That's how rural, that's how rural Jamaica was. 
I wonder why his mother went back. Maybe it was to care for an ailing parent. That's always, almost always the case in Jamaica um, for immigrant families. And it's not exclusively a Jamaican thing. It's um, people from Latin America do the same thing. They come to the United States, they work, they send back money. If a parent gets sick or is ailing otherwise, sometimes you have to go back and care for a parent because there are no facilities, there are no services to care for senior citizens. So. It stands to reason that would be the case. In 1950, as we discussed, he became a folk singer, learning songs at the Library of Congress's American Folk Song Archives. He appeared in nightclubs, theaters, and Harry was a handsome man. His, his handsome appearance added to his appeal as a frequent performer on those 1950 variety shows. With hit recordings, as we discussed, such as Deo, Banana Boat Song, Jamaica Farewell, he initiated a fad for Calypso music and became known as the King of Calypso. In the mid-1950s, Harry Belafonte and Mark Twain and other folk favorites were the first of a series of hit folk song albums. I never knew that. And Belafonte won both a Tony and Emmy. I didn't know that either. Really accomplished. And, and think about the environment in which he was succeeding. We're talking pre-civil rights. Correct. What does that mean to you, that he was able to achieve all these? I think Harry Belafonte was a very thoughtful man. He was a product of his times and in the 1950s, like the rest of this country, it was that post-World War II high that America's the best. I'm sure he was trying to feed a family, trying to keep the wheels greased, wheels really on the on the truck. And then I think like everything by the late 50s, early 60s, I'm sure that, and let's be honest, he probably made enough money to take on other interests. You know, he did take a break from acting and in the 1960s, he became the first African-American television producer. I didn't know that either. You know what, we were just talking about Cosby. If anything, I would have guessed Cosby would have been the first, but. And over the course of his career, he served in that capacity on several productions. So it was during this time, you know, we're getting into the 60s, but then I feel like for the country and Harry Belafonte, the civil rights movement took off. He was a supporter of, a heavy supporter of the civil rights movement and a close friend of Martin Luther King Jr. He was active in African humanitarian efforts, notably appearing on the charity song, which I never knew, which is my era, We Are the World, in 1985. In 1987, he became a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador. He received the Jean Herschel Humanitarian award from the Academy of American Picture Arts and Sciences and in 2022 he was selected for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow, I think my man lived, what, three lifetimes? And I do th agreed, if not four or five. And it's interesting to think about him now because he is definitely pre-Sidney Portier, pre-Bill Cosby but he was in some of those 70s genre with Sidney Portier and Bill Cosby but not in the starring role as Sidney Portier was. And let's be honest I'm sure they were throwing him work at that point because by the mid-1970s, he was a different person. He was probably a grandfather at that point, getting into the 80s. You know, he was, he was probably in his late 40s, mid-50s, so he was trying to keep things going. But I do think, and doing a little more research, that I think the death of Martin Luther King uh, took a chunk out of him. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, I mean, the death of Martin Luther King led to riots in the cities all across the United States. So I, I think it was palpable for a close friend like Harry Belafonte to lose such a such a good person and such a good friend in such a violent and horrible way. And
And of course, I sent you that picture on Twitter, and I was deeply moved by his tears and standing next to Coretta Scott King. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think we definitely lost a good one. I'm sure, like any other human being, if we dig deep enough, we can find and identify all his failures and foibles. But at the end of the day, Harabelle Lafonte was a true gentleman by any measurable, reasonable standard. And I think his, his loss will be painful not only for his family, but for a community of people that have looked up to him, respected what he has done for the African-American community. I mean, he lived a good life, but as you and I have talked about, and, you know, he is one of the, he is one of the last of what I will term, and I obviously, you know, taking it is the greatest generation. When Harold Belafonte was coming of age in the 40s and 50s, probably the America he was fighting for was a different America by the mid to early 1960s. And like all people, he evolved in his beliefs, his growth, what he was learning about his country as we all do. And I give him credit for kind of taking a much more serious stage. He didn't just stick with what was working. He expanded and grew as a person. Yeah, so do you want to get into some of the details behind what you think were these transformative moments or you or you just more, you want to deal with it more from the impression of his life? No, I, I'm happy to do that, I guess, because we keep talking about, not that we mean to, but that kind of the death of the American dream. And I think for a man like Harry Belafonte, he was trying to make money in the early 1950s, but by the late 1950s, early 60s, like many people of his generation, what we thought was acceptable with the minstrel shows, the Sammy Davis Jr., they all, you know, I'm going to throw Marvin Gaye in there. It was kind of that era of Motown. If you act white, the whites will like you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's always been difficult. It's always been difficult for men and women in Hollywood, performers, artists, what have you. If you want to eat, if you want recognition, you have to perform for the white audience. I don't know if there's any way around that. I mean, does that mean he's inauthentic? Or, not, or do, not to me. So, I mean, the, the question is like, and I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, how do you reconcile those two? How do you remain true to yourself and your experiences trying to keep the lights on and trying to keep the lights on sometimes in the most embarrassing way by performing and living up to the worst expectations white audiences have of you and your community? I think for me as a white woman, though I would never compare it to the African-American experience, I had to put up with a lot of sexual harassment that I wouldn't put up with today. Now, granted, it's, it's a different vibe today, but I didn't have a cushion. I had a widowed mother. I was told to keep my mouth shut and keep employed because we needed the money. And when you need the money, you do take more than you should. And I think I think for that whole era, that generation, they were trying to keep the lights on. But I don't want to say that he made all of his money, then kind of started fighting for the good fight. I believe it. I don't think Harry Belafonte, I don't think he was filthy rich. I think he was comfortable. But I think he evolved and he decided to do the right thing and become a more authentic person, if that is the correct way to describe it. Yes. And I think that's the goal we all have we want to become a more authentic version of ourselves you know and he he was on the forefront of walking with Martin Luther King Jr he was with you know everything that Martin Luther King was involved in he was involved in and I don't think he was the same person 
person on the other side of it. I don't think you could be. I don't think you can stand in the midst of the civil rights movement and be in the presence of a Martin Luther King Jr. and not be transformed by the moment. And I think that's why he took a step back by the late 1960s. Harry Belafonte, that whole era, and this is probably another podcast we should talk about, is that whole Motown era, whether it's Smokey Robinson, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. Smokey Robinson never became as political as Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, but by the mid-1960s, the African-American community that was putting on that minstrel show, they stopped. Yeah. You know, it's Stevie Wonder living in the city, Marvin Gaye, what's going on. They were speaking for their generation and a generation of white Americans that were starting to question the American dream, and rightly so. And I think Harry just kind of took a step back from the whole industry, I think just to catch his breath, and rightly so. I would agree with that. I think that's a really interesting perspective that you constructed. It's, you know, where I'm going with this is something you literally just alluded to, and that is when it comes to matters of civil rights and race, there is a discussion, there is a perspective in the African-American community, and let's be honest, it's usually for those who are middle class or a little bit more comfortable that who make the argument that a conservative keeping your head down approach, not ruffling feathers, is the best, most effective way to bring about change. And on the other side, you have people who are not quite as fortunate financially, economically, who want immediate change, who are willing to go out in the streets make noise, protest, agitate, agitate, agitate in order to bring about change. So in, in some ways, we, we think of the civil rights movement as the struggle between African-Americans and entrenched white supremacists. And it really wasn't that simple because there were black people in the South, primarily, who were not keen on Martin Luther King and the civil rights activists coming into their communities and agitating because they know they, they knew, excuse me, that it would bring about violence. It would mean a loss of economic opportunity. And they did not want to deal with the pressures, the blowback that's inevitable with any such movement as the fight for civil rights. And I think Harry was caught up in that. And in respect to those Southern communities, you know, probably how that felt is, you know, a Harry Belafonte, Martin Luther King come in, they stir up everything, but then they go on and move on. Yes. Yes. And, and that's the this is part of the underbelly of American history that I think it's important for us to understand. You know, we like to see things in black and white, both metaphorically and literally in terms of struggles. But it's not that simple. In so many ways, African-Americans have been divided amongst themselves. Um, let's go back even to the Civil War, for instance. If the South had ultimately conceded and agreed to allow African-Americans to fight in the same way that the North had allowed African-Americans to fight the war, you would have had situations albeit not the same, not, not to the same degree and extent as you have in the North where you have large armies of black men fighting against Confederates. But you would have had some Southern slaves fighting on behalf of the Confederacy. And as a black man, I have to acknowledge that's a, that's a reality. That would have happened. The South not been so beholden to their ideals of white supremacy. They may have extended the war. They may have given themselves a chance to negotiate a better peace deal rather than the full, you know, capitulation that took place in 1865. Sorry for the digression there, but I think it's apropos to what we're talking about in regard to what happened in the 1960s with Martin Luther King and the topic of today's discussion, Harry Belafonte. In some ways, some of the pushback, albeit subtle, came 
from within the African-American community who did not want to rock the boat. Yeah, my only point of reference is someone like Barry Gordy, you know, grooming the Martha and the Vandellas, the Supremes, Stevie Wonder. And this is coming from an African-American man who was making money off of them and did not want them to become political because it was going to hit his pocketbook. There you go. And by the late, yeah, the early 1970s, as we know, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder were butting heads with Barry Gordy because he wanted to keep them white. He wanted the white audience to keep buying the music. Of course, it's great when you're singing, you know, uh, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, all of those just kind of syrupy love songs that post, you know, World War II bubble that we were living in. By 1965, and with the death of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, just crashed all around this country. And we're going through that same reckoning now. It's a different reckoning, uh, but it's still in the same book. It's a different chapter, um, but it's the same book. And I think this is this is what Harry was dealing with. This is where he was. This is a man, as you said, an African-American in the 1960s, by any standard, he would have been better off maybe keeping his head down and his mouth shut and coasting because in so many ways, Harry Belafonte was was privileged. He had made a successful career, was extremely talented, extremely handsome. He could have been the face of sort of that vanguard of change when when corporate America started embracing African Americans in their marketing campaign. He could have he could have made a fortune being on the vanguard of change that took place in the 1980s, in the late 70s, the 1980s. However, it's it's a it's a situation where without the struggles of the 1960s, you don't have the benefits of the 1970s and 80s. So it is all very complex. Yeah, and I feel like we're all patched, you know, all of us, Harry Belafonte, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, they all were a generation that passed the torch to another generation. And that's just what's happening now. It is a different, it's the best description. It's another sad chapter in a very long book. And we are in the middle of a reckoning. I don't know where it's going, but it's definitely a reckoning. And I'm going to compare it to the 1960s. Well, I mean, I see one of two paths of the, for this. I think a lot of the tension in the country right now ultimately will arrive at the Supreme Court. And let's face it, the Supreme Court, it will define the morality and it will define the standards of a society for years, generations, perhaps uh, centuries to come. And I think that's kind of what is going on in this country right now, because you have a generation of older, wider, more conservative people in this country who recognize that this is kind of the end of their chapter in American history and they want to preserve it by any means necessary and that's why they're fighting so hard and on the other side you have a generation of millennials Gen Zers soon to be Gen Ayers who want nothing to do with that history and that's part of the tension that we're seeing in society and so in many ways this is a uh, redux of the 1960s that's taking place today and the younger generation doesn't want really anything to do with anything exactly in the 1960s you could say well you had the baby boomers fighting against the establishment and they wanted to fight for women's rights and student rights and civil rights i think you're absolutely right i think the generation of millennials and gen zers i think they just want to be left alone but also be taken care of i don't know if there is a great some sort of great moral guiding star that they're 
directing themselves to, against. And, and I'm speaking in broad terms. I mean, people like Greta Thunberg, who's an advocate for the environment. I think those people are, are, are have very clear ideas. You know, what do you have the Parkland kids who are fighting for gun reform? So I, I don't want to make it sound too universal, but this is this is akin to the world in which Harry Belafonte found himself in the 1960s, a country that was tearing itself apart. And I think, too, with the younger generation, they're not interested in there is a level of narcissism that concerns me. You know, I when I go to lunch when I'm at work, no one sits together and talks at lunch anymore. Mm -hmm. People sit at the same table next to each other. I don't see anyone talking. They and they're Well, not even that now. They're FaceTiming people next to each other. Yeah, I, I saw that. It's funny. I, I remember I had a Thanksgiving dinner at my house. It was close to 10 years ago now. And there were some young kids at the table and I'd never seen it before. Rather than talking to each other at the dinner table, they were literally sitting next to each other, <laughs> but they were texting. And I thought, wow, and I, I, that memory, that moment sort of seared itself in my memory because I recognized what was happening. I recognized the change that was taking place in our, in our society, that physical engagement with the other is no longer desired by this generation. And um, I, it's it, it's peculiar. But anyway, so back to Harry Belafonte, let's talk about what you think his legacy is. Because I mean, we could probably write books and tomes about what he meant. I think his legacy, when I think of Harry Belafonte, I think of three things. I think of his Calypso music, I think of Deo, you know, but my impression of him is also, I think of him more as a civil rights person. When I think about him, that's what I think about is his civil rights era. And then I have to be honest, I love that photo. I forgot about him and the Muppets. Come <laughs> you on. You love the Muppets. I do. I am a Muppet lover. So, you know, he's doing the minstrel stuff. He's changing the world. And but by the, you know, 80s, early 90s, the torch has been passed to another generation. And he's a grandfather now. And he's it, it's not he's now doing the Muppets. And I, and I have no problem with that because he was in there for decades trying to do good. And it's something point, you have to let it go and you have to move on to the next phase of your life. Agreed. I, I, I totally agreed. I think in some ways, Harry Belafonte, I think you could draw a connection leading to a Denzel Washington, because I think history has taught us that nothing is truly revolutionary. It's more iterative. It's about one change leading to another, leading to another. Some individual in the past makes uh, a series of accomplishments that open the door for succeeding generations. And so I think you could draw a straight line from a Harry Belafonte to today's leading African-American actors in Hollywood and how his struggles, his presence helped to, to transform our attitudes towards what a leading man is, who should be on screen, who should be represented, who should not be represented, or how we should represent them. I, I mean, think I this think is it's, all a legacy of, of Harry Belafonte. I agree. And I think it's Harry Belafonte led to a Bill Cosby, you know, led to, let's be honest, he led to an Eddie Murphy, uh, Denzel yes. Washington. Denzel, to me, is not the same. No, no, I would agree with that. I think I know where you're going. No, Denzel and Harry Belafonte are not come from the same cloth. Yeah, Denzel's just not, um, he's not as much as a revolutionary activist as I'd like him to be. But he is truly, Denzel is truly driven by more of a religious compass. And I have to respect that. Yes, I think he's, a, he's the type of person who would go to church and pray for change, whereas Harry Belafonte would go out into the streets and agitate for change. And and I think there is an audience for both perspective. And let's be honest too, I know it's silly, but that Deo, the Banana Boat song, that 
was prominent in Beetlejuice. So it kept him cool so, for so many different generations. Yeah, I think a lot of people got a chance to experience Harry Belafonte. There are multiple generations. Uh, his life was so long that he got to witness the most dramatic changes. Now, as I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, going to Jamaica in the 1930s was like going back in time to the 1800s because things were so primitive back then. So you go from a situation where you have that experience as a child and then at the end of his life, he's literally witnessing machines with near human level of intelligence and the world is changing around him. And now you have white people fighting, <laughs> arguing that their rights, their civil rights are being infringed upon. So in some ways, during the arc of his life, the history has come almost full circle. He was quoted as saying, if I've impacted one heart, one mind, one soul, then I would say that I've been successful. And I know that we can both agree that he's impacted more than one of everything. Absolutely, 100% agree. Rest in peace to Harry Belafonte. We will, he will be missed. He will. Who's our sponsor? This week is the Springfield Alehouse Delco. Address is 773 West Sprawl Road, Springfield Township, Delaware County, Delco Strong, 484 484- 4472-6742 is the phone number. They have the best drinks and the best appetizers in the tri-state area. What's your favorite app there, Nick? Cheesesteak Egg Rolls. Of course, they're my favorite too. It is family owned. Please go out and support them. Follow them, you know, going into the summer, the hours are going to change a little, but please follow them on Instagram at the Springfield Ale House Delco, Facebook. You can chat with them, but we prefer you to stop by in person and order directly from them and come in and say hello to everyone. Thank you for joining us today on The White Bikini. Please remember to subscribe to The White Bikini on all of your favorite podcast services and please follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. Thank you for joining us today. Peace out. Feed a lot.
Just looked around 